The board, who would for the most part have liked to see Miss Pointer burned at some form of wooden upright, are too busy battling the evangelist's blazing determination to ban on religious grounds several of the texts students are required to study that year. Gulliver's Travels survives the scissors, as does A Christmas Carol, but modern short stories in English is consigned forever to the forbidden zone. Sadly, it is so dull that not even this recommendation can make any of us read it more than once. My loss of faith is sudden, and it's not so much a conversion as a reappraisal. Children are still modeling the world, still understanding how it works. Their convictions are malleable like their bones. Thus, I experience no sudden, horrible wrench as my belief is uprooted, but rather a feeling like the right pair of glasses being put in front of my face after some time wearing someone else's. The evangelist brings me to a study to tell me off for one of Gonzo's outrages, and I sit waiting for a higher power to intervene and tell her that it isn't my fault. I look upward, naturally, to the place above my hairline where adults come from, the place where, broadly speaking, heads can be found and persons in authority exert their will in the name of justice. There is no one there. It is unclear in my mind whether I am looking for God in person or a more earthly parent as his instrument, but neither appears. The evangelist adds a charge of rolling your eyes at me to the sheet, and I spend a week in detention after school. Gonzo is mysteriously unwell for the period, with a vile sore throat which is probably infectious but doesn't stifle his ability to loaf, and which Lydia Copeson also develops. They convalesce a great deal together, feet touching under the blanket as they sit at opposite ends of the sofa and choke abominably. Spring becomes summer, summer becomes autumn, and Gonzo and his beloved part company over her inability to comprehend the importance of muddy walks and frantic leaf-kicking. She takes the opportunity to inform him that she went with him only to gain access to his parents' donkeys, to which Gonzo responds that the donkeys loathe her, despise her silly hair and stupid upturned nose, and they have asked him, by means of sign language, to convey to her their deepest and most unalterable disdain for her opinions in all matters of consequence. Thus avenged, the wretched girl departing in a frozen fury, Gonzo retires to the riverbank and we fish in silence. And this time, Gonzo catches a decent-sized trout with his new rod, although it is left to me to kill the creature and present it to Marlubich, who dutifully guts and cooks it for dinner. Though fortunately, it is served alongside a more enjoyable dish of meatloaf. Gonzo is not the only person with relationship issues. At old man Lubitsch's insistence, we sit in Mar Lubitsch's parlour one night in lonesome October, watching the world have something of a tizzy. Mar Lubitsch's television is very much a curiosity, a wood-panelled thing with chunky buttons which whines and gutters alarmingly and occasionally overheats and has to have a rest. But on the screen, all the same, are more people than I have ever seen in one place. 
and half of them appear to be very pleased about something, and the other half extremely cross, and neither side has a great deal of patience about it. Old man Lubitsch explains that this is normal in what is called politics, which is essentially the business of countries and big groups of people trying to make everyone see things their way. Since no one ever does, very little is achieved, and practitioners are voted out, and others voted in, who reverse the process, so government, as old man Lubitsch explains it, is not so much a journey as a series of emergency stops and arguments over which way up to hold the map. What has happened today is therefore something of a shocker. An actual decision has been taken in the face of all the odds, and it is one which absolutely no one saw coming. It is also, to use a technical term deployed by a chortling analyst, something of a corker. The island of Cuba, which is a long way away, has thrown off its communist rulers, who were in fact not communists but totalitarians, and here old man Lubitsch looks as if he may spit, but Ma Lubitsch gives him a totalitarian look of her own and he subsides, and has chosen a somewhat improbable route to enter the modern world. The people of Cuba have petitioned the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, which is not really a kingdom, that would be another form of totalitarianism, for admittance and been accepted. The resulting entity is the United Island Kingdoms of Britain, Northern Ireland and Cuba Libre, and is already being referred to by the wits as Cubritania. As an introduction to politics, this is pretty much in at the deep end, but old man Lubitsch is well informed and patient, and by the end of the night I understand that I have seen a historic thing and that the people of Cuba have opted to join a nation of shopkeepers because they want infrastructure, roads and sewers, freedom, not being beaten up for pulling faces at politicians, and a decent injection of cash and junk food. This is called standard of living. The people of Britain have accepted them because they relish the notion of an influx of well-trained, educated people of pleasing physical appearance who have rhythm, and because their national psyche needs somewhere to replace another island called Hong Kong, which they apparently lost somehow and are still sulking about. Mostly, however, it seems they have accepted this arrangement because it has put the wind up the rest of the world and that pleases them greatly. The people who seem most upset are elements of the global business community based in distant places like Johannesburg and New York and Toronto and Paris who basically assumed that Cuba belonged to them and was on lease to the communist totalitarians all this time. This intelligence means very little to me but old man Lubitsch insists that the time will come when I am glad to have seen it and proud to remember it. And while Gonzo finds this unlikely and sees in his mother's eyes a deep patience with her husband's folly, I believe it. The silent, bristling heat of conviction is in Gonzo's father, and it passes in some small measure to me. I carefully store Q-Britannia away in my mind's attic, and throw a blanket over it for good measure, and the next day is a Wednesday, and our first lesson is history, 
and the evangelist puts her head around the door to tell Mr. Kremmel specifically not to talk about it, and she sits in to make sure. Mr. Kremmel dutifully teaches us about the Industrial Revolution instead, but he makes some kind of innocent error when it comes to homework, and the page references he gives us are for Cuba after all. Snow comes to Cricklewood Cove that winter. It is early December and the temperature rises from below zero to a comfy one or two. There is a strange crisp smell of pine and wood smoke and something clear and different. A wide low cloud settles over the cove and over the Lubitsch house and, thanks be to the god I no longer believe in, over the school. The cloud does not loom, nor does it threaten. It is warmer and deeper than a rain cloud and has a definitely benign feeling, and when it is finally ready, it unburdens itself of a vast quantity of white flakes, which fall straight down. They are not the thick, wet flakes of spring snow, which are sort of misplaced like confused geese. They fall in an endless flow, small and dry and floating evenly and covering everything, and when they go down the back of your neck and chill your spine, they are still solid when they reach the waistband of your trousers. This is real bona fide snow, come down from the high mountains and stabling the sheep and visiting the saloons and raising a ruckus over a girl in little frilly trousers. The blizzards strand me inside and I discover the western and John Wayne is my hero forevermore, although a hero of admiration rather than emulation because he always ends up dead. Gonzo plays at being the Duke and lies dramatically and probably autoerotically splayed upon the hall carpet, gasping out his last. When the clouds clear, it does not get warmer. It gets much, much colder. Cold to cause glaciation and kill mammoths and drive migrations in the Neanderthal men whose existence the evangelist denies, thus inspiring a brief but frantic exploration of the library from malprinted or heretical Bibles and fierce debate about the nature of Esau. Children, bored and opinionated, are scholars of the most dogmatic stripe. The alcohol thermometer in Gonzo's garden cracks. An old man Lubitsch has to arrange a curious external heating system to preserve his bees which he does using piles of compost, which are in the grip of an exothermic reaction, although Gonzo's father calls it an exothermic reaction, which means that the process of decomposition is generating heat. Old man Lubitsch carefully creates piles of warm, rotting garden goo around his bee houses, and the smell is curiously pleasant and grassy rather than rotting and deliquescent. But Mar Lubitsch does not approve and mutters darkly about dratted bugs and how much honey can one eat in a lifetime anyway. But old man Lubitsch takes this in good part and hugs her. He actually gets his arms around her and lifts her off her feet, and she swats at him and demands to be put down before he does himself a harm. The Lubitsch house retains its unorthodox external heating arrangements, although Mar Lubitsch extracts a promise that they will be gone when the spring comes so as to avoid any possibility of explosions. On the following Sunday, and for the first time ever, Meg Lake freezes over. Meg Lake is an oxbow, 
a hoop of water named for the Greek letter Omega, one of the few Greek letters of which the evangelist approves, the others being in some mystical way gateways to licentiousness. It is constantly refilled by an underground river which flows down from the mendicant hills, and when there is a great deal of rain, the lake bubbles over the rocks at the western end and finds its own floodways to the sea. At any time, Meg Lake is a choppy and turbulent body, ripples sprinting out from the centre where the water boils up, and reflecting off the craggy shores to make, according to our geography textbooks, a pattern of constructive interference where the splashes collide and produce waves, and destructive interference where their interaction yields little patches of calm. But now it is frozen, a broad grey-blue crescent of bowed ice, thick and growling. Marlubich parks the car. It is a four-by-four, and it is completely forbidden to old man Lubich, who, on the occasions when life's exigencies place him, against his spouse's better judgment, behind the wheel, drives it like a racing car, in a pair of nasty shades, and draws admiring glances from women younger than his suit. Marlubich brings the beast to a halt by the lake, and Gonzo scrambles over me, or possibly through me, in his urgency, and then we are all unloading the car. Tackle box? Check. Rugs? Check. Charcoal burner? Check. Eyesore? Check. This family, extended family, is going Eskimo fishing, something old man Lubitsch and Ma Lubitsch used to do back when she was a sylph-like thing with no hips, and he was a bull of a man, short and powerful as a tropical storm, and my, how she adored him. And from the immodest twinkle in her eyes, at least as much of them as I can see through folds of skin and squint and woolen comforter, she still does, and shall do evermore. It is only the ghost of one soldier that stands between them, and even this is not a separation, but a strange sad bridge and a deep mutual knowing like nothing else. Marcus Maximus Lubitsch, tennis player and able cook, laid to rest now and visited sporadically in a well-kept corner of the churchyard at the edge of town. At this moment, Marcus is present. Even Gonzo, thigh-deep in snow and flailing gleefully at the powder, quiets his voice and shares the solemn smile which passes between his parents. Marlubich lights the burner, but she uses somewhat too much fluid, and the thing fairly erupts, singeing her muffler. She gives a great shout of Polish obscenity and then looks guiltily around, but there are no linguists within thirty miles, and she giggles. More constructive and destructive interference, no doubt, in the pattern of her wobbling fat, but this is concealed. An old man Lubitsch goes to get the eyesore. Meg Lake's ice is not lightly to be cut. It is oddly clear and hard, more like glacial ice, which is pressurized and squeezed over thousands of years, than lake ice, which is fraught with cracks and rivulets. Gonzo's father assails the ice with the saw, initially near the shoreline, but latterly further out when it becomes apparent that there's no earthly danger of it breaking, but to little effect. Old man Lubitsch hacks away, but this is serious frozen stuff, 
Ice like Arctic ice, with a bad attitude and a stubborn mien. It is ice, in fact, a lot like old man Lubitsch himself, who was hounded from his hometown for being cheeky to the communists, and then refused return when he was cheeky to the new fellas in much the same way. Perpetual exile, letter writing malcontent. Furious and disappointed of Cricklewood Cove, Gonzo's father will not concede.